Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and today's episode is all about the physics of bees. Specifically, the function of magnetoreception in honeybees. Magnetoreception is a real-world sense that some animals have that allows them to sense a magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic field. That's mind-bending enough. It's a sense which is alien to us as humans, but for birds, bees and many other animals, it's as real as sight or hearing. It's well understood as an effect, but quite how or why animals use it or have it is still under much debate. Sitting in my garden, reading Physics World, I came across an article by Hamish Johnston entitled Honey Bees Navigate Using Magnetic Abdomens. It's based on some research conducted by a team of physicists and biologists in Canada. Ronnie Lambiner is a biologist and Mike Hayden is a physics professor who worked with Ronnie on this research. My name is Ronnie Lambiner. This was part of my PhD program to investigate how and why bees perceive magnetic fields. So my name is Mike Hayden, and I'm a professor of physics at Simon Fraser University. And I like to think of my role here as a bit of a, a support role. Um, so I've um, I've assisted uh, Roni and her uh, advisor Gerhard Gries on some of the physics aspects of this uh, this investigation. Um, so we have been investigating um, and wanted to see and create a connection between um, ferromagnetic material in bees' abdomen and a biological function show that those um, ferromagnetic particles in bees in fact do have um, a function and that they are responsible for magnetoreception. Um, magnetoreception is a great thing that animals and usually like or best known in migratory animals do have like a internal compass so they can sense directional information of the earth's magnetic field and use this information to orient accordingly. Before we really get into this research into magnetoreception in bees I wanted to understand a little better how it is that bees find their way around so I went into central Bristol that's possibly not the first place you'd expect to find beehives. But as you approach Bristol Science Centre, which is called At Bristol, you can't avoid seeing this huge image of a bee that's virtually the height of the whole Science Centre. I don't know if it's a banner, I don't even know if it's artwork or a photograph, but it's clear that there's an interest in bees at At Bristol. Inside you'll find an array of interactive exhibits, events and activities on all aspects of science. But on the roof, surrounded by the office windows and rooftops around, is a wild garden. The roof's been turfed and there are wild flowers dotted among the grass and the moss. Around one corner you'll find two wooden beehives. It's there that I met Heather Lampard. I'm Heather Lampard. I work in at Bristol Science Centre in the Exhibitions Department as a content developer. And then outside of work, I am the founder of the Bristol Nature Channel, where I make short nature documentaries on the natural world. Our hive is really special. It's the first kind of live tweeting beehive, um, and it's tweeting kind of science data as it's happening at City Beehive. As we stood there, I noticed there was a distinct lack 
of any bees? Um, so unfortunately this winter there was a cold snap um, and unfortunately we lost them but it's quite common in beekeeping and over the years I think um, certain organisations track how many honey beehive losses occur and each year it's different depending on how bad the winter was. And yeah, it happened to us. Okay. So, so it doesn't have to be that cold, because I don't, I don't feel like it got that cold in Bristol this year. It's things like when you have, you know, really frosty mornings, those cold snaps. It's all about where the bees are inside their hive. If they go to an area where there's not enough honey stores and all the honey is at the other end of their hive and then there's a cold snap, they don't have the energy to go to their honey stores and so unfortunately they die. It's like you having a full fridge or an empty fridge. If they don't have enough honey, they won't survive the winter. Mm. But also, having lots of honey helps keep the hive itself warm. Mm. It's like wrapping it in blankets okay. kind of thing. So it, it, should we stop eating honey? Um, n- no, but you should get your honey from a reasonably sourced place because there is a problem if, if you take too much honey from a hive, then you have to supplement the honey with sugar water And that's like giving you a diet of only bacon and donuts and nothing else. Whereas if they have the honey that they themselves have made, they've got all the nutrients from the flowers and the pollen that is essential for them. It's a super healthy diet, so you've got to be careful. Um, Sometimes beekeepers do help there, even if they've had enough honey stores, if it was a really bad winter and they happen to have eaten a lot of it, beekeepers do supplement the honey with sugar water or lumps of fondant icing just to help keep them going. Mm. But if you're a good beehive keeper, then you definitely wouldn't take loads of honey from the hive. You'd be very conscious that they, it's their food, they're the priority, they need enough to survive the winter. As I say, I'd come to at Bristol to get a better understanding of the behaviour of bees so that I could understand where this electromagnetic research fits in. I had hoped to see the bees and get a sense of how they moved around and navigate their surroundings. But at Bristol have a new colony of bees arriving into the hives and Heather explained how when those bees arrive they will get to know their new neighbourhood. The the new hive that's coming, um, they are a Bristol based hive but obviously they've never been to this part of Bristol where our lovely science science centre is. So when the hive arrives they've got to figure out where their nearest food source is. So the moment they come and they're, they're let loose they'll start doing kind of navigational flights. So they fly around the hive, kind of learning the look of it, the look of their home, and then they'll kind of expand their circle, getting bigger and bigger, taking in all the landmarks in the area, logging it in their brains so they know you know, how to get back to their home. And they keep kind of extending that circle out and out and out until they find a food source. And if they find a really good food source, they'll come back to the hive and they'll tell all the other bees in the hive, look, I found this amazing food source. Um, This is how you get there. They do that by that lovely waggle dance. Um, And then all the bees know to go to that place. And you can see this happening. So if you put your new hive down released the entrance you can see the bees coming out and just flying around the hive loads Mm. and then getting bigger and bigger Mm. and when it becomes established as well you might see flight lines Um, i guess this would be for the expert beekeeper who know their bees obviously (laughs) you can't fully know unless you put a tracker on a bee where it's going but you could make an educated guess based on what's around you and the best food sources so now i know a bit about how bees find their way around 
I don't know about you, but I can't see why they would need magnetoreception. They can see to map out landmarks, and they have a waggle dance to point the way to the rest of the hive. Here's Ronnie again. They, of course, also use their eyes for orientation. Um, that's without a question. Um, but it could be believed that perceiving the Earth magnetic field, anomalies of the Earth magnetic field, could help bees to orient, further orient in, in their environment. Um, there is an article out there from De Jong in 1982, and he described that bees, when the hive gets too large, the colony gets too large, what the bees do then is they swarm, they search for a different location. The queen will take half of her colony with her and like go to a new location where she can build a new hive and therefore the colony splits into two. So when the bees are like going to a new location, they need reference to some sort of external Thing because thousands and thousands of bees are then therefore set up with the task to agree on a orientation of combs. So they have to build new combs and they have to agree on an orientation. De Jong found that in the very initial process of like agreeing on this orientation of the combs, bees are making reference to the mother hive. And let's say if the combs in the mother hive were oriented north-south, then bees in the new hive will then also build in the north-south direction. And therefore, sensing the Earth's magnetic field is very advantageous because usually a hive is dark, and therefore, if you can sense the, the Earth's magnetic field, that's a very efficient thing for them to orient. So magnetoreception does have a use for the bees. But how does it work? That remains a relatively open question. But Ronnie and Mike and the others in the research group have made a significant step towards an understanding. I asked them exactly what they have done. Um, we were like in in this particular manuscript, we were particularly very interested to make to create a connection between ferromagnetic particles that already have been found in bees' abdomen and a biological function, because for now it wasn't quite clear whether those magnetic particles in bees actually serve, have a biological function, and whether they are responsible for magnetoreception. Okay, and did you find that they were? Yes, we did. Okay. Ronnie found that the ferromagnetic particles are magnetite. That's the same stuff that's found in some bird beaks, which other scientists have found is how they navigate. Ferromagnetic particles are permanent magnets, just like an ordinary fridge magnet, but considerably smaller. These ones do have to be bigger than 50 nanometers, however, and that size is crucial because they need to be big enough to exhibit a stable magnetic field. A stable magnetic field is achieved when all the electrons in a single domain ferromagnetic particle have the same direction. So, First of all, we wanted to find those ferromagnetic particles in bees again, and therefore we used a squid to um, locate and measure these magnetic particles. I'm guessing you don't mean swimming squid. No. <laughs> a um, superconducting quantum interference device. A large grey machine <laughs> in which you can insert bee material in a straw. <laughs> It's a machine that is very, very sensitive um, to magnetic, magnetic fields and can measure 
magnetic nanoparticles very precisely. And once we had like the answer that we can find ferromagnetic particles in these abdomen, um, we went further and we were magnetizing live bees um, to see whether we can influence those magnetic particles in these abdomen. So we had two groups, a control group and a treatment group, and we magnetized the treatment group and we did not magnetize the control group. When we then um, analyzed these abdomen for um, magnetic remnants, we could see that only bees that were exposed to a magnet before showed remnant magnetization in their abdomen. This gave us the confirmation that the magnetization process itself actually changes the configuration of the magnets in the bees. Just to say that the magnet they were using was thousands of times more powerful than the Earth's magnetic field. But all this was done in a lab. They needed to do the field work. And with bees, field work is really done in a field. They wanted to see whether they could reproduce this effect there and whether it would then disrupt the bees' ability to find a food source. Bees were trained to respond to a magnetic anomaly and once they have learned to respond to that magnetic anomaly by flying back and forth from the hive to that magnetic anomaly, we magnetized those bees and found that bees that were magnetized could not perceive or could not orient correctly to the magnetic anomaly again. Wow, okay. You, you trained the bees. How do you train a bee? Yeah, um, <laughs> you can train bees by making a location very attractive, by setting out a sugar source. So usually what you do is you have a little watch class and you start out at the hive with the bees you want to work with. And um, then you move that little watch glass of, with sugar water further and further away. In the beginning, it's a fairly slow process, and you can only move a couple of centimeters at a time. But once the bees start flying towards the sugar source, um, you can move fairly quickly and then train them to go to a specific location. And the bees that have learned this location will come um, over and over again. They will drink this sugar solution, bring it back to the hive and have it there to store it and come back to um, forage some more. Training bees sounds a bit risky to me. Do you get stung often? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had my fair share for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, have you been stung at all? I'm very pleased to have come through this whole investigation without a single sting. <laughs> have you not been near the hives? I have. Froney has brought me near the hives, but I, I, I approach with caution. Okay, okay. What are you doing wrong, Froney? They don't, they don't sting without a reason. Usually I, it's just when I'm handling them. And... It, it's quite amazing to watch what happens. Uh, um, in many cases, Brony will individually label these bees with little markers, little stickers. And so she, she literally handles these bees, and uh, they're very comfortable with her. She's very, very comfortable with them. Yeah. <laughs> They're thought to be like this super organism that where one bee doesn't really matter, just a hive does. And I find that interplay with each other of them and how they react in this collective manner is very interesting to watch. And every time I'm opening a hive, like I'm excited and happy to hear them buzz around and it makes me real happy, yes. Bees seem to have this effect. Beekeepers 
and biologists alike seem mesmerised by them. I spoke to Heather about this magnetoreception and she was fascinated but not surprised. Bees are weird though. They're so like they they use um, the electric field of a flower to know that it should land on it. And I mean that's obviously a bit different to magnetic field lines, yeah. but how do they do that? What's going on there? Oh, it's amazing research. A flower is kind of like a brand, and it's trying to sell its brand, and it does that via smell, the way it looks. I remember, there might have been something else, but an electrical field. So a flower, when it's growing, it has like an electrical field around it, which has been caused by the difference between the ground and the air. And when the bee comes along, the hairs on its body kind of respond to that field. And so there's this lovely footage of a bumblebee where they've got like a metal prong, which I'm guessing has a bit of an electrical field around it. And when they turn it on, the hairs of the bumblebee bend towards the metal prong. And so it's the same concept. So if a bee's flying around and it feels its hairs go, um, it gets, it kind of triggers the nerves by the root of the hair, yeah. which then tells it, oh, there's, there's nectar down there, fly, land on that flower, and then it, it gets all the nectar. So when people talk about bees having particular favourite flowers, it's kind of true in a way. It is true, yeah. They also have a favourite colour, they like purple. So I know, they always recommend if you want to have a bee-friendly garden, like purple, like lavender. Yeah. It's like the best thing. Okay. So Heather recommends lavender, and her passion for bees is clear. I have to admit that I share that love of these fascinating creatures, but I wondered if human activities could be disrupting their ability to sense the Earth's magnetic field. Well, that's, that's not really known, but this is actually very interesting, especially from power lines and cars and cell phone towers and so on. We are producing quite a little bit of magnetic pollution or electromagnetic pollution. So with colony collapse in bees and like them not doing fairly well it would be very interesting to go further and see whether this electromagnetic pollution does have an effect on on colonies so more research is needed on that but what about the other way around can the magnetic field affect us there's been some research albeit somewhat controversial into magnetoreception in humans it's safe to say that Vronnie and mike are not convinced that's Professor Mike Hayden, who specialises in magnetic research. All, all I can say is that I've spent my most of my, my research career working around magnetic fields, and um, I've been in some very intense magnetic fields. I've never felt anything. <laughs> yeah, it seems unlikely to me. But, but how common is it in the animal kingdom? Oh, that's hard to say, and it's also hard to know how intentional um, animals perceive um, the Earth's magnetic field. The more and more research that goes into more and more animals are described to be uh, magnetosensitive, but the actual biological function behind it often isn't very clear, other than in migratory animals such as salmon, turtles, um, birds, etc. And that's where this research can really make an impact in our understanding of and further research into how this magnetoreception works, not just in bees, but in many of these other creatures. But Vronnie's research has the potential to open other doors too, 
Here's Professor Mike Hayden again. Well, I think there are some some really nice connections between the sort of challenges that uh, Vroni was facing and and some other uh, challenges that people face. Uh, so, for example, with the um, in the, her study, she was interested in trying to probe and and quantify some actually some very very weak magnetic responses, and so we had to work on techniques in order to try to pull that information out from from the data and in fact developed a, a technique that, that is the subject of a different manuscript, but it's actually a, a something that I think could become quite a powerful little technique that could be applied to other studies of, of magnetic materials, things that have nothing to do with uh, magnetoreception. So I think there's a very nice interplay going on here between biology and, and physics, uh, some of the, the needs of the uh, the biological investigation are, are driving uh, developments in, in physics. These are no strangers to physics and biology crossovers. In fact, in the late 1940s, Nobel Prize winning zoologist Carl von Frisch discovered that bees see polarised light. And it was his friend physicist Hans Bendorf who helped him reach that conclusion. You can read more on that in Mateen Girani and Liz Callagher's Furry Logic book. Chapter 6 to be precise. And Heather has made a film about the way that bees make honey for the Bristol Nature Channel on YouTube. We'll post a link to that on the Physics World website. And when I was researching for the film, I didn't realise that bees have a honey stomach. It's separate to their food stomach. So when they kind of suck up the nectar from a flower, the nectar goes into the honey stomach and specific enzymes start breaking it down starting the process of turning it into honey and then they fly back to the hive and they regurgitate it into a, a younger bee's mouth um, and then they put it in their honey stomach they add their own digestive juices and then they keep patting it between themselves until they think it's ready to put in I know it's so weird isn't it <laughs> then they put it into their little honeycomb cell and then they fan it as like quite for a long time to evaporate the water until I think only 17% left and then it's honey and then they cap the cell and then they store it. Hang on, so they're, they're flapping their wings so fast yeah. that they're evaporating the water yeah. out of the honey. That's amazing. I know. And do you, do you know anything about the honeycomb, the kind of hexagon thing? What's going on there? Yeah, well that in itself is fascinating. I think loads of people throughout history have been trying to figure out why is it that lovely shape and loads of people are saying, oh, you know, the bees are intelligent. They, they know that's the most efficient way of, you know, creating cells to have as much space as possible. But actually, I think what the bees are doing, what, you know, the most recent research shows, is that they make circles out of honeycomb, uh, the wax stuff. And then when they put the honey in and they start to fan the honey, that as well as the fact that there's loads of bees living in the hive, creates a lot of heat, and the heat causes the walls of the little honeycomb cells to, to melt, to soften, and they all kind of join up from, um, by surface tension, which makes that hexagonal kind of pattern. Mm. So if you imagine you've got like a tray with a layer of bubbles, if you look at how the bubbles sit next to each other, you'll see that honeycomb shape. It's kind of like physics. Yeah. It's beautiful. Hamish's article on the Physics World website has sparked some interest among readers and there have been a few comments. I wanted to put one of them to Vroni to get her take on it. 
M N Ice or is that M Nice? Writes, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. The fact that the bees could no longer find the food in the test magnetic field doesn't necessarily imply that their magnetic navigation sense is damaged by the magnetization. It could simply be that they can't find the food because the strength of the sensor signal no longer matches their memory of the original training sessions. Uh, so that requires a bit more playing around with the bees. Perhaps Veronica and the team could retrain the magnetised bees to see if they can then once again find the food. So we were not really looking at bees' ability to navigate in their surrounding, but we rather looked at their ability to use magnetoreception in order to identify a magnetic anomaly which guaranteed them a sugar reward. And as the training condition hasn't changed, but bees' behavior has changed after the magnetization process, this leads us to believe that bees were not able to perceive the magnetic anomalies anymore. However, it is true that we cannot make the statement that there are no potential cellular repair mechanisms, which, if that was the case, could result into eventually a perception of magnetic anomalies again. And yes, we could definitely learn more about bees' magnetic perception mechanisms if we were to retrain them. But this leads into a whole new set of experiments. Um, however, even though they would be time expensive, they would definitely be worth investigating. We also received a letter from Bob Adams. Dear Editor, I read the article on bees navigating and magnetic fields with interest. A couple of years ago, there was a colony of bees, probably no more than a few dozen, under a shed on my allotment. The entrance was just below the door. If the door was closed, they happily entered their hive, but if the door was partly open, even though the entrance was clearly visible, it completely spooked the bees, and they gathered in an angry crowd until I closed it. Does this mean that my shed door is magnetic, or is there some other homing mechanism at work? Unfortunately, I cannot repeat the experiment, as the Oxford floods submerged the hive and the bees never returned. Thanks, Bob. I'm very sorry that the floods took your bees away, and I'm afraid I can't help with that. But just to say that a friend of mine has a dog which is similarly confused. They're having some building work done, and where there was once a door, there's now an open doorway. The dog won't cross it. It walks up and down, looking decidedly unnerved by the space where the door used to be. Perhaps for all their magnetoreception and all their clever behaviour, Bees can be just as silly as dogs. Next month we'll be looking at how politicians misrepresent and misunderstand science. If you have any thoughts or feedback, we'd always love to hear from you. You can tweet at PhysicsWorld, write to us, or post a comment on the website. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I'd like to thank Physics World for asking me to explore this fascinating piece of research. Ronnie Lambinet and Mike Hayden and Heather Lampard for talking to me, and at Bristol for letting me up on their roof. And of course, thank you for listening. Physics World.